0: Morning again. For those of you that don't know me or maybe just tuning in online for the first time, my name is Paul Graham and I'm lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside. And um, we are beginning or we are continuing in our series on doctrine through the summer. And uh, today we are talking about the doctrine of the atonement. And uh, I'm going to get into exactly what the atonement is, obviously, in just a little while, but as I've been doing at the beginning of the messages, I've been giving you a a few other resources to go to, because there is no doctrine that I can cover fully in 35 minutes, or 41, as it was last week. Um, But... uh, So, a couple of other resources you could look to. Concise Theology, the book that we all got last fall, and people have been, again, purchasing, and we have them if you don't have one in your household. J. I. Packer's Concise Theology. You'd be looking at pages 134 to 139. He calls it Sacrifice and Definite Redemption. Uh, He approaches atonement with a little bit different words. Um, Prior sermons that I've preached on this, way back in 2014, so it might be a little cringy to listen to me, but... Way back in 2014, I did a series on Easter, and uh, specifically the New Covenant in Christ's blood. And so that was on, um, what is that, June 1st, I preached that. And so uh, that would be a sermon to check out that is also covering different aspects of the atonement. And if you look online, you can find those messages. And then finally, there's a short book uh, by, J- by John Piper, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. I am so kind to you people with these tiny books I give you. So there's 50 reasons in here. They're like a page each, maybe a page and a half. And um, there are several chapters that talk about the atonement. And really, the reason Jesus came to die is what we're talking about when we're talking about the atonement. What did Jesus functionally do on his, in his life and death? And so this book is also free online. If you just Google 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die, you can get the PDF for free and read the whole thing on your tablet or whatever. Um, And I think I have a couple copies. So if you get to me early, I could give you this one. All right. The Atonement. Let me just pray before I start. Father God, we're really dealing with a doctrine here that is... um, at the heart of everything. (laughs) This is the gospel. This is um, why you came. It's the reparation of our relationship with you through your Son. Uh, There really would be hard to imagine anything more central than this in our life. And uh, so, Lord, I just pray. Obviously, we can't cover it all this morning, but I pray that we would unpack the atonement and understand some of what it is that you did for us. And, uh, Lord, that you would bless your word as it's read, and that you would bless this message as it lands on our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, In Act 5, Scene 1 of Shakespeare's Macbeth, we encounter the pivotal scene of a sleepwalking Lady Macbeth. Am I taking you back to high school English now? Lady Macbeth is is sleepwalking and she's acting out the spiritual torture of guilt that she feels for being complicit in the murder of King Duncan. And she's scrubbing her hands to remove the bloodstains that she feels are still betraying her guilt. And yet she cannot clean her hands no matter how much she scrubs them. She still smells the blood and cannot perfume it away. She murmurs, hell is murky. As if she's already partway in hell simply by experiencing the consequences of her guilt and her sin. Bah, she continues, or technically Phi," but I didn't know if you know what Phi meant. So, bah, she continues, as though speaking to her husband accomplice. Are you a soldier and afraid? Why do we need to fear when we know no one has the power to call us into account? And yet, who knew the old man had so much blood? Now, this is a remarkable play. It's a remarkable scene. And Shakespeare touches on several profound truths or themes of the reality of the human condition when it comes to our guilt. And the effect of our guilt on our soul is seen in Lady Macbeth. Our need, on one hand, for guilt to be cleansed, but recognizing at the same time there is so much blood, we cannot cleanse our guilt even if we can protect ourselves from being punished for a time, even if we have some sort of power or authority that we can, you know, kind of keep our guilt and our our sin at arm's length, eventually the stain cannot be removed. And we're able to forget about it for a while as David forgot about his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, but eventually it comes to mind as David's sin did under the prophet Nathan. The knowledge of our sin... Robs us of all peace and pleasure, and we know there must be reparation made for our wrongdoing. We feel it in our souls, and as Christians, we know it ultimately breaks our image bearing of God, it robs us of our relationship with Him, and it places us under His judgment. Something has to be done about our sin, or we are broken and separated forever. And it's a problem we can't solve, but God, in His love, desires to solve for us, and He has. And the Bible uses a fancy word, atonement, to describe the way that God has solved the problem of our sin and solved the problem of our guilty standing. Not just our guilty feelings, to be clear. It's not just that we feel guilty, it's that we are guilty, that we stand guilty before God and there will be consequences for that guilt. But God has done something to take care of our sin so that we can be reintegrated into relationship with him. And in the Old Testament, there was the Day of Atonement, which we read about a lot in Leviticus 13, and the Day of Atonement under the law, under the Old Covenant, was the culmination of multiple seasons of sacrificial offerings and feasts throughout the calendar year of the Jewish people. And on the Day of Atonement, the sins of the people were placed ritually on the head of a goat, which would then be led out into the wilderness and released, literally a scapegoat. If you wondered where the word scapegoat came from, that's where it came from. Sins of the people were placed on the goat. It was taken outside the camp. It was sent off into the wilderness. The goat was a substitute for the people. The goat carried their sins away and suffered, being forever expelled into the wilderness, separated from the community and separated from the presence of God and his people. That's atonement in the Old Covenant. But the old covenant laws of atonement were just a shadow and a picture of the real atonement to come. We read in Hebrews 10 that the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, and instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the writer of Hebrews says all that Old Testament sacrifice, all of that law that God put into place, it was just a shadow. It was just a picture of what was true. And it was never actually going to work. It worked for a time to forestall the judgment of God. God accepted it in his patience, but it was never the actual sacrifice that was required. And so the Old Testament anticipated a new covenant, someone who can make us perfect, not by a continual sacrifice every year, but one sacrifice once for all on the cross. And that's atonement. And we read most clearly about what Jesus' act of atonement is in Romans chapter 5, where we read in 6 to 10, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we will be saved by his life. And so when we talk about the doctrine of atonement then, we're talking specifically about the way in which Jesus, in all of his works, both life and death, has dealt with our sin. And he has dealt with the effects of our sin in order to restore the broken relationship between God and mankind. That's what the doctrine of atonement is. It's all of that. And at its core, the doctrine of atonement is attempting to understand what Jesus accomplished, what happened, what he did, what transpired in his life and death. And we're going to talk about his resurrection later in the summer when we do justification. But that's what atonement is. What did Jesus actually do? What happened in all of this? And it's obviously an important question, so it's right to think carefully and scripturally about the cross and what he did there. Now, there's three primary views on the question, what Jesus did for us, and they're all supported from Scripture, and they've all received more or less emphasis at various times in history. And the first two theories that I'm going to talk about are the first two models of the atonement that we get from Scripture for us to understand what's happening, if they're taken by themselves, are not what mainstream evangelicalism would call complete, The first two on their own don't really satisfy atonement. The third model of the atonement incorporates the first two, and it adds a dimension that some mainline churches would reject and say the atonement doesn't go that far. We can't can't take Scripture that far. We can't take God that far. But you'll understand this better as I unpack these things. I just want you to know there's three models. The first two lead to the third, but unfortunately there's large parts of the church, so to speak, today that would abandon the third model or the third truth of the atonement. So let's unpack that question. This is the question that we're asking. This is the question that we are answering. What has Jesus done for us? And I'm going to work from sort of the least of what Jesus has done to the greatest, even though you can't really phrase it that way. But the first model is Christus exemplar. And Chris's exemplar model of the atonement is talking about Jesus as our example. In other words, in his obedient life and in his humble and sacrificial death, Jesus has provided for us, for God's people, an example of how to live properly before God and with each other. The work then that Jesus came to do was to show us how to love God properly and at the same time demonstrate to us how deeply God loves us. So some people would answer the question that way. That's what Jesus did. That's why he came. That's why he was sent. That's even why he went to the cross, to set an example for us and to demonstrate for us love. Now, in some sense, you can say that this approach to the atonement is Jesus' work towards mankind, because this is really what Jesus has done for us. His life and death are a model of how to love and to know how much we're loved. And there's a lot of scriptural warrant for this understanding of the atonement. It's not wrong. This is a good way to think of what Jesus has done for us, in part. We have many verses. John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 1 John 2:6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Sounds like an example. 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Well, that's pretty obvious, so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus is an example. Or Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So he was a demonstration of God's love, and we are to imitate that love. Or Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul taking it even further, saying he's more than just an example. He's the power of your life. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christus exemplar is a theory of the atonement that says Jesus came to model for us how to love and be loved and to demonstrate the love of God for us. And there are many more verses. And Jesus certainly was at least an example of, to us and teach us this. And this model definitely emphasizes the importance of Jesus' life in this atoning work that he did. Jesus did need to come and live and to teach and to model righteousness for us, and his death is an example to us of the length of God's love will go. In error, though, some theologians overemphasize this theory, and it becomes what's either called the moral influence theory just Peter Abelard, a Frenchman in around 1100 AD, put forward this idea, or the moral example theory, who came from Faustus Socinicus in 1600 AD. And the problem with Christus Exemplar is if you leave yourself at Christus Exemplar, you have to ask the question who's atoning who? Are we just working really hard by following Jesus' example to atone for ourselves? Is that. All that Jesus did is he set an example, he told us how much God loves us, he told us how we should love God, and then he just said, follow my example, and maybe you can work yourself out of the problem that you're in. So Chris's example, Jesus is our example, and he is a demonstration of God's love, but it has to be more than that. You can see that it just doesn't seem to be enough. Or it just seems unlikely that to reconcile the entire human race, all God needed was to just give us a better example of how to love Him properly or to show us more clearly how much He loves us. Neither of those things functionally changes our situation as enemies of God, where we are dead to righteousness and objects of His wrath. We are left at the end of Christus' exemplar still unatoned placing Christ, our example theory, in the right order and context, John Piper frames it this way. This is the right way to consider it. Imitation is not salvation, but salvation brings imitation. Christ is not given to us first as a model, but as a savior. In the experience of the believer, first comes the pardon of Christ, then the pattern of Christ. So as you think of what Jesus did on the cross and you meditate on that, and you praise him for it, and you think about it, and you pray about it, and you you give him glory for what he's done on the cross, you can think about Jesus as our example and as a demonstration of God's love, knowing, though, that imitation itself is not salvation. We do not work ourselves out of the predicament we're in. We follow the model of Christ, but for our actual atonement to take place, to move from darkness into light, from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of the heaven, there has to be more to the atonement than just Christus exemplar. Another model, and I'm just doing the top three, is Christus victor. The idea of Christus victor is Jesus as our victor, as our champion. And this model of the atonement emphasizes the work that Jesus came to do was to gain victory over the spiritual forces of sin and death that are arrayed against us, our spiritual enemies. Provides us an example of righteousness, and provides us a demonstration of love. That's what Jesus does towards us. But there's a sense in which, if you think of Christ our victor, this could be viewed in the context of Jesus' work towards our spiritual enemies. So on the cross, he was working towards us, and on the cross, he was also working towards the spiritual forces arrayed against us. And there's a lot of scriptural warrant for this view of the atonement. I'll mention just three. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Wow, that is a really clear sentence. (laughs) When you're looking for the reason Jesus came to die, John says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Certainly, Jesus is the victor over our spiritual enemies. Colossians 2, Paul says the same thing. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. What Jesus did on the cross gave him triumph over our spiritual enemies. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says the same thing. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, writer of Hebrews says the same thing. Through death, Jesus destroyed the devil and rescued people, out of lifelong slavery. So when you're thinking about the atonement, when you're thinking about the question, what has Jesus done for us on the cross? It is right to think of him. It is right to praise him. It is right to glorify him as Christus Victor, as the triumphant champion, because he has defeated death and sin and the devil. And the Christus Victor name, it gets its modern name from... A gentleman, uh, Gustav Alwin, he's a Swedish bishop of the Lutheran Church, and he wrote a book on the history of the atonement in 1931. But the concepts of Christ our victor are not so modern. As he wrote that book, his theory goes back to the earliest church fathers in the decades immediately following the completion of the New Testament, as we talked about last week. And if we just think about this model of the atonement, if we think about this theory of the atonement, of this way of thinking of Scripture and what Christ has done, instinctively this aspect of the cross work of Jesus just seems more likely to have a functional effect on our atonement. If we just think about it, it, it seems like it makes sense that if we are going to be set free from sin, if God is going to repair our relationship, if we are slaves under a power, a spiritual power against us, then it makes sense that if we're going to have our relationship with God restored, if we're going to have our sin and guilt dealt with, then it just seems like if Jesus could do something when he came to address those spiritual realities, then a way of atonement would be made open. And that's true. Jesus has accomplished those things. And of course, all of that is true. By his life and death, Jesus did accomplish our total and complete victory over sin and death. That was a way that was made for us. And an important aspect of meditating on and thinking of our atonement in terms of what Christ has done on the cross in Christus Victor is also that the emphasis in this model is shifting away from what we must do towards what Jesus has done. I mean, we like this model a little bit better already because it's not Jesus just came to tell us how much God loved us and show us how to love him, and then we have to do a whole bunch of work to save ourselves. Christ as Victor, you know, we start to feel better about this way of thinking of the cross because Jesus has done something that we couldn't do. We can't beat the devil, we can't set ourselves free from our bondage. Jesus as Victor has come and he has done something for us. So we like this model. He's more than a perfect example that sets a high bar that we're supposed to somehow jump over to qualify for acceptance. Rather, he's the winner of the victory, and our hope in this model is properly placed in his accomplishment, not our accomplishment. We are the object of his love, who he has set free from captivity. We don't break our own chains, but he breaks them. So we... We almost instinctively start to like this theory a little better because it seems to be going in the right direction, that Jesus has got to be the one doing something because we're not going to do it. But there's one more problem that these models of atonement do not not address yet, and it's clearly the biggest problem that we have. We need Jesus to do more than accomplish something towards us. We need more than an example. We need more than knowledge of God. We need Jesus to do more than something against the powers of spiritual forces. He needs to do something more than just towards our enemy. We need that, but we need more than that. Jesus has to accomplish something for us towards God. That's what's missing. Jesus hasn't done anything yet for us for God. And so we come to the third model of the atonement, Christus propitiator. And that's my term. I just made that up. If you Google that, you won't find it. <laughs> but being a pastor, it had to fit the pattern of the other two, okay? Just my OCD kicking in there. So we have Christus exemplar, Christus victor, Christus propitiator. And this is Jesus our substitute. And this model of atonement emphasizes that the work that Jesus came to accomplish was to substitute himself in our place to bear the penalty of sin which is from God. And this is my label for what is commonly called substitutionary theory of the atonement, specifically penal substitutionary atonement. And this model of the atonement incorporates fully and affirms both of the earlier models that we just talked about. Jesus is our example. He does demonstrate God's love for us. Jesus has gained victory over our spiritual enemies of sin, death, and the devil. But Jesus also... And with regard to atonement, primarily, I will say, acted as our sacrificial substitute in order to satisfy the penalty of sin that we face under the wrath of God. If Christ, our example, emphasizes what Jesus did towards ourselves, and Christ, our victor, emphasizes what Jesus did towards our spiritual enemies, then Christ, our substitute, emphasizes what Jesus has done for us towards God, because that's the relationship we need reconciled. And he's the biggest problem by far. We are not a big problem. Our sin isn't a big problem for God. Satan is not a big problem. Seems like he's a big problem, but he's not the biggest problem we have. The biggest problem that we have in our universe is God. No bigger issue than what happens between us and God. And so Christ, our example, emphasizes What Jesus has done between us and God. You remember our opening verse from Romans 5. This is why I opened with it. Verses 8 to 10, it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been now justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved from him. From our spiritual enemies? No. From the problem of our sin? No. From the wrath of God? That's the problem. That's the problem we've got to get dealt with. Because if we deal with this, and we deal with God's wrath, our sin can be taken care of. Satan and all his forces can be taken care of. But this wrath of God thing, we need that figured out. For if while we were enemies, the problem isn't that Satan is God's enemy. The problem is we are God's enemy. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. See, this is where atonement comes from, that Jesus had to die to reconcile this relationship so that we could be saved. And fundamentally, our problem is not only that we're sinners and therefore we sin, our problem isn't just that we need to practice a better righteousness by following a better example. Our problem is not just that we have an enemy and that we're captive to that enemy, our biggest problem is that we are God's enemies and that we are rightly and justly the object of God's anger and his proper and just rejection of sin and sinners. In other words, for God to be God, he must justly deal with us as sinners. And so for Jesus to be Jesus, his life and death has to address this aspect of our broken relationship or there is no atonement. There is no at one meant with God, unless Jesus addresses this. The cross can't ignore the wrath of a righteous God, and this is why the Trinity is important. This is why the deity of Jesus is important, because God's solution to his just wrath at sin and at the same time his perfect love for his people is that he is going to step in and satisfy the demands of his own righteousness by substituting himself. Because this is what God has to do. He's got to be just, and he's got to be loving. (laughs) And so he says, I got a solution here, and the Trinity solves it for me. In the form of Jesus, I'm going to substitute myself to bear my own wrath for your sin against me. I can do that. That's fair. Now, it would be unjust if God simply ignored our sin and pretended it didn't happen. If if, if God rewarded criminals rather than punishing them, then we wouldn't trust God even as a local county judge, let alone as the God of the universe. And so if at least what we expect of our local county judges, we would expect of God, then God must, to be just, punish sin. And at the same time, It would also be unjust for God to place the consequences of our sin against him on the shoulders of anyone but himself. If someone else who was perfectly innocent of my sin had to suffer the penalty of my sin, you would say, well, that's unjust too. It's not fair that this innocent person suffers Paul's sin and penalty. That wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be just unless, unless... The person offering to bear my sin was the very God I sinned against. And as the offended party, God has the right to forgive and choose for himself to bear the burden that my sin causes. That's his right, and it's just. And so when we ask what Jesus has done for us in his life and death for our atonement, the answer to this question is, we can say biblically that Jesus has acted as our substitute. He has borne the penalty of our sin in order for us to be at one with God. And so that's why we call it penal substitutionary atonement. Let's look at Romans 3, 23 to 26 to see this again. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's why I said Christus propitiator, because we have this fancy word. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, that means on the cross, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins all that Old Testament sacrificing going on. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All of these elements are so important. I know you got your thinking caps on because this is doctrine of atonement. And all of these elements are so important to understand how God is so perfect and righteous and how he's chosen to redeem us. And if we look at this text, we see that Jesus, it was Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation. God did it. And it's such a fancy word, propitiation. The Greek word is Hilasterion. And Hilasterion can be translated maybe in your version in the NIV, I think they literally call it an atoning sacrifice. It specifically means the mercy seat the lid or the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, which was sprinkled with the blood in order to expiate the sins of the people. And of course, none of that terminology is an accident. It's a precisely chosen word, propitiation. God has put forward, God has initiated, God has acted in order to provide a satisfactory substitute that propitiates or satisfies, it removes, it expiates the consequences and implications of our sin by His blood, by the work of Jesus on the cross. We receive the offered substitute by faith. If we trust the substitute and don't trust ourselves, we will be propitiated, we will be atoned. Finally, this is what we've needed from God, and this is what Scripture says that we have received, that God does it for our redemption and to demonstrate that He is both just, He's fair, He's proper, He's righteous, He's pure, no fault can be found with Him. He is absolutely just in this model, and He's the justifier. He's the one who makes us able to stand before Him as righteous. And now we begin to see in this model or in this understanding of the atonement that both the former models of the atonement, though both true, they were incomplete. On their own, they would fall short of satisfying our debt to God. More importantly, they fall short of demonstrating God as being just and righteous But with substitutionary atonement, we can see far more clearly that Jesus has done something, actually done a real functional thing on the cross between us and God. There was a transaction that took place historically in time, at the right time, God sent his son to do this thing, to actually fix something. Something transpired, and he has taken our place, and God has inserted himself into the equation in order to satisfy his justice on our behalf. And Paul makes this idea of the atonement, all the scripture makes this idea of the atonement clearer in many different forms, but Paul does it in his letter to the Colossians, I'll do this one, rather than using the language of sacrifice and propitiation and uh, hilasterion, you know, the mercy seed, instead of using that Old Testament atonement language, Paul says it this way in Colossians. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen. So here Paul says that the thing that happened to get victory over death, which we already talked about in Christus Victor, to to make our relationship with God alive again, to bring us back to life. He says you could think of it this way. It was a debt that was canceled. There was a real debt, and we couldn't pay it. We couldn't cancel it. But Jesus did it. He's our substitute payment plan. God took our debt and everything that we owed him for our sin, and he took it and he put it on himself in Jesus Christ, and he nailed it to the cross with Jesus and as Jesus, and that debt and all its demands have been substituted with Jesus in their stead, and they're done and they're paid for. So nothing stands now between us and our Father. You see, the very idea of a substitute as a sacrifice, as a propitiation, as a debt canceller, all this substitution language implies there must be a penalty. If there was no penalty, why do we need a substitute? And the penalty of sin is many things. And this is where sometimes people get hung up on this penal substitution thing, because they think, well, God wouldn't punish us. He's not angry. It's more the problem with our consequences of our sin. He's upset that we've gotten ourselves into this mess. Well, penalty can mean consequences. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. The natural outcome of sinning is death. It means debt, as we just read in Colossians 2.14. Penalty means separation from God. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ died to bring us to God. One of the penalties... One of the consequences of sin is that we're separated from God, and Jesus died to get rid of that separation. That's a penalty. It means guilt under the law. Galatians 3.24 talks about that. It means also the wrath of God, as we just covered in Romans. And you could do all of chapter 3, 4, and 5 to get the wrath of God in the consequences of sin. And so when we talk about penal substitutionary atonement, the penal part, the penalty part, is all of these things. But we see as we go scripture by scripture that what Christ has done on the cross has dealt with all of these penalties. He's dealt with the consequences, the wages, the debt, the separation, the guilt, the wrath of God. He's dealt with all of the consequences as our substitute. And there's people that struggle with this notion of penal substitution. They don't have a category in their minds for a God of love who is also just and righteous. They say if God is love, it seems impossible then that sin could require a penalty, that a consequence of our rebellion could be God's displeasure, even His proper and just wrath. And they, they can't make that compute. But the problem is, if we look at the Bible, there is a biblical category of love and atonement being linked together. In fact, as you go through the scripture, you will find that God's love is most prominently proclaimed in direct conjunction with the cross of Christ. God's offering of Jesus as a substitute is categorically included in and actually defines his love. You can think most famously of John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was God's love and his initiative it was the Father's idea. It wasn't grumpy, angry, God the Father, and Jesus says, I've got to fix this relationship with God, so I'm going to go and I'm going to die, and, you know, finally God will love them. Ooh, that's not how it goes. God so loved the world, he sent his son. Or here in Romans 5.8, can't say it much clearer. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still yet sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. The atonement and God's love are inextricably linked in Scripture. Or you could go to John 4.10, herein is love, not that we love God, because in our own flesh we don't, but that He loved us and gave His Son as a propitiation, as a satisfactory substitute for sin. So I don't know how you look at penal substitutionary atonement and try to make the argument from Scripture that somehow the atonement is not the demonstration of a loving God. The atonement is the love of God towards us. There is nothing that needs to be reconciled here in this view of the atonement. So often in the Bible, the idea of the love of God and the atoning work of Christ are linked. It's impossible for us as Christians to think of the cross without thinking of God's love. It's impossible at the same time to think of the depths of God's love without thinking of the cross, because the love of God is the atonement of Jesus, of us, through Jesus on the cross. Charles Spurgeon, the famous 19th century English preacher, he says this about the cross. He says that, if you understand this point, and the point is what I've just been making, he says, if you understand this, if you understand this point that the Apostle Paul and Peter and John and James and even Jesus is making, if you understand this point that while we were yet sinners, God loved us and sent his son, then when you look at the cross, Spurgeon says, you must reverently ask, is it possible that God loves me more than he loves his own son? Just let that land on you for a minute. Because you have to be careful how you ask that question. But it's impossible for it not to come up if you think it through. How can God offer his own son as a substitute for me? Can he possibly love me more than his son? That he would give his son in order to reconcile with me? It is that much love. And it's also not that. Because God's Son is also God. And Jesus also loves us as equally as does the Father. And so God could offer his Son because his Son did offer himself willingly. And so when you ask that question, could it be that God loves me more than his Son? Yes. And no, he loves us equally. He loves us so much that he would substitute himself to see us redeemed. And Spurgeon goes on, he says that this is the distinctively Christian element in the idea of divine love. The redeeming action, or we could say the atoning action of God in Christ in the atonement of the cross is the revelation of the depth of God's love towards his people. And the Apostle Paul says, if you've seen that, if you've seen the love of God for you, sinner, if you see the love of God in Jesus on the cross, and you have confessed that love in receiving him as your substitute, and saying, it's all about you, Jesus, and not about me, I trust you, I have faith in you, I receive it by trusting you, and take his righteousness as your own, Paul says, then you can have full assurance that your relationship with God is secure, today and forever, The strength of the relationship that we have with God and God has with us is forged on the value of the price paid to restore that relationship. It was not something inconsequential that God paid to buy back our relationship with him. So never doubt how secure your relationship is if you have your faith in Jesus Christ. Too high a price was paid for God to ever let that redeemed relationship slip away. God will never hold lightly to what was bought with so great a price. A covenant that is sealed by the blood of Jesus will never be broken. This is why our understanding of the atoning work of Jesus is so precious, why it's so core to the doctrine of Christianity, why it is essentially the gospel. When we talk about the atonement, we're just talking about the gospel. And sometimes as Christians, we just almost take the atonement for granted because it's so close to the center of everything we talk about. We rarely stop and actually unpack that this is what Jesus has come to do for us in his life and death. He has atoned for us. He's redeemed this relationship. And we need never fear the breaking of this relationship because what God has paid so high a price for, he would never let slip away. A covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus will never be broken. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the doctrine of the atonement. And doctrines don't show up in the Bible with, like, labels, the doctrine of the atonement. But we just see the doctrine. We see the truth. We see the atonement in all the scripture as you teach us that this is what Christ has done on the cross, not just these three things, Not even just the 50 things that John Piper talks about in his book, but Jesus has done these things, and most primarily, most significantly, most gloriously, he has come as our substitute. He's our representative, he's our head, he's the sacrificial lamb, he's the one who died once for all so that the penalty of our sin could be paid for, so that your wrath is satisfied, it is evaporated, it is absorbed, it is gone. We need never fear your anger. You can never love us any less than you do through Jesus, and you can never love us any more. You love us perfectly through our trust in Jesus. And Father, I just pray right now that if there's anybody listening, if there's anybody here that sees that, Seize the love that you have for them in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, and they put their trust, and they trust, and they have faith that it is through Jesus that they are reconciled to you. And they confess that. They confess their sin. Father, I just pray that that everyday miracle of salvation would take place even right now. That they would just say, it's all Jesus. It's not me. It's all your action, God. It's not mine. I trust what you've done.